I'm Mallory Wyckoff. This is In the Waves. Friends, welcome to episode four of In the Waves podcast. We're going through my book, God Is, and talking with folks about how it interfaces with their own lived reality and uh, sense of spirituality. And today we're talking through chapter four, titled God Is Communicator. In this chapter, I really wanted to explore some of the theological implications of this idea that God is one who enters into, willingly so, enters into human communication, which, as we know, is a wildly messy and imperfect and imprecise process. Anybody who has sought to explain what is in their mind and in their heart to someone else, anybody who has sought to be vulnerable with another human, whether a partner or a friend, and and share something that's intimate for them. If you've ever tried to put something creatively into the world, a poem, a song, a play, you know that it's inherently vulnerable, that there is not an option for perfection here, that there are so many risks that you assume in engaging through human forms of communication because they are necessarily imprecise and imperfect and messy and fallible. And yet, in the midst of all that, people keep writing, people keep singing, people keep communicating. And what is more, God keeps doing that. God seems free of so many of the fears that we have around divine communication. We are more afraid for God to be a communicator, to speak to and through and among us, than God is afraid of doing so. So I explore some of that in this chapter and what it means for us and for this larger conversation around who God is um, and uh, how we understand God. So I wanted to bring on one of my favorite poets, David Gate, to be the conversation partner for this episode. David is a, a poet, a writer, a visual artist. He hails from London, but currently resides uh, with his family in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Asheville, North Carolina. His work centers around care for the individual, involving heart, mind, body, and soul, and also nurture of community including culture, the earth and the environment, the dignity of others, and spiritual communities. David is a lovely, thoughtful, creative human being, and I so enjoyed getting to talk through this chapter with him and explore you know, our own experiences of the, the vulnerability and the risk-taking of communication and creative expression and he offers so much uh, to that that conversation he also shares several of his poems which are so so beautiful you can follow him on instagram at david gate encourage you to check him out and to spend some time with his work Uh, it's it's such a gift continues to be so for me and i hope this conversation is a gift for you David Gate, I am so excited to get to talk to you today. Actually, it's just hitting me right now 
in this moment that I have a David Gate poem behind me on the wall here Amazing. in this shot, right? Um, you are a poet, you are a pastor, you are a songwriter, yeah, and you are the perfect conversation partner for the discussion around this chapter of God is Communicator. Thank you for being here today. You're welcome. It's a real pleasure and a privilege to be here. So I have some questions I want to ask you first, and maybe most importantly, you yep. hail from the UK. You are from London, correct? Yep. Okay. How long have you been in the States? Um, I've been in America for uh, coming up to 12 years. Mm. So um, I lived in Jacksonville, Florida for five years um, when we first moved here, and we've been in uh, Asheville, North Carolina for the last, well, coming up to seven years. Yeah. Mm. So what are some of the things that you miss most from home, and what are some of the things that have been kind of surprising gifts from your time here in the States? Um, things I miss most, I, family. Um, we're a long way away from family. And especially in the, the kind of, since COVID, we've not seen them as much. And so it's kind of number one. Well, I say it's number one, but really number one is food. It's, <laughs> it's like the things you ate as a kid and the candies and the, or we would call them sweets. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cookies, which we would call biscuits, and uh, the crisps, uh, which you call chips. And so <laughs> things like that are actually the things I miss. And, and like really, really good curries, like you can get just amazing. I grew up, the part of London I grew up in had a lot of families that were of Indian or Pakistani or Bangladesh um, descent. And so we, we just had the most amazing South Asian food where I grew up. And mm. I'm very fortunate we have a we have an award-winning South Asian restaurant in Asheville, but um, there isn't much great. Like when I lived in Jacksonville, there was there was nothing. It was like a desert for Indian food. Um, so I miss that really. Uh, and then in terms of what I like about living in America, I always thought that the um, kind of relentless positivity would grind me down, mm-hmm. and I, I'm kind of a bit of a natural critic or cynic I guess at heart in, in some ways but really I found uh, that the can-do attitude of of America to be actually quite inspiring and really healthy for me to make and create and that feel that feeling like it most people want you to do well and believe that you can do well and want to see you um, work hard and, and and just go for your dreams like I, and that I mean, it can manifest itself in very, very unhealthy ways in America. Mm-hmm. But um, the opposite is what I grew up in, which is like, oh, you can't do that. That's Who are you to do that? You know, like, mm-hmm. where, where did you grow up? Who are your parents? Who's your, which school did you go to? Like, in just a lot of complaining. Apparently my inner critic is British then because it says all of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um America's um been been good to us in in terms of our family too. We we have um kids on the autism spectrum and we have found that the school systems here have been a bit more adaptable and, and um forgiving for that. So that that's been good for us too. Mm. I don't remember if it was in this chapter or another one, but I talk about um I spent a semester studying in Cambridge and got to just travel all mm. around the UK and one of the things I was most grateful for was uh, that tea was readily available. I am a tea yeah. drinker. I don't like coffee. 
and it was just everywhere. And I, mm-hmm. it's like you'd walk into a bank and they'd be like, hey, did you want tea and biscuits with your transaction? It's like, yeah, yeah. the answer is always yes. yes. Yes, I want the tea. Yeah. And it just is so uncommon here. You know, I know yeah. if I'm going to stay at someone's house or if I go to a conference or something, I got to bring my own stuff, right? Yep. It was a big adjustment from the from the the tea culture to the coffee culture. Um, and I like coffee, so it's... Uh, not been so bad, but we we as a family now are just rediscovering making tea in the evenings, and because mm. um, we, we've got four kids, and we've we just bought this enormous teapot <laughs> where we fill it up, and it it all goes too quickly. Yeah, well, I could talk about uh, this <laughs> talk about tea for a long time, but I do want to get to our conversation about. Uh, creativity and communication and how that yeah. plays into this larger um, book about God is and who and what God is and expanding our sense of that. So I want to ask, tell me about your own journey as a, as a creator and as a communicator. What's that been like for you? So it really kicked off in my teenage years. I, I started learning the guitar when I was like 15 and started learning Beatles songs and uh, Radiohead songs and and pretty soon after I could play the first few chords I just started writing and so I just wanted to write songs mainly and to do that you have to write lyrics and so I started to to just write and um, uh, I was in the church youth group and I uh, started to lead worship in that group and so just then started writing songs for us to sing and at first I was mainly just ripping off psalms and, you know, adding little bits. And then as I grew in confidence and ability, started to do a few more. And then um, I was pretty young when I, I had my first few songs published. I was like um, 16 when I had mm-hmm. my first few songs published. And, and that really just made me think I can do this, you know, like to have to be that to receive that kind of encouragement at that younger age, you know, it, it kind of takes away imposter syndrome and mm. you you feel like, oh, I can do this. And so then, yeah, I spent really basically the next 20 years of my life just um, mainly writing songs. And uh, I would do poetry. I would write um, articles and blogs and for other websites I would write tweets and <laughs> I guess they count as writing um, <laughs> and I would write poetry in my spare time but I think I always felt like poetry was like a little bit inaccessible like I always felt like I didn't go to Cambridge and study poetry and so there's that there's that thing that I think a lot of British people have which is you know if I haven't gone through the proper channels to 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 do it, I'm not worthy of doing it, or I, I have nothing to offer. And so it was just more of a private thing. And to be honest, a lot of those poems were kind of like pretty poor or, or, or just a bit too serious, you know. And then after a while, I, I, when I, we, so I was working for a uh, church in Jackson when we first moved here, and I ended up doing writing lots of devotionals and lots of material for that church, um, as not just songs. And then when we moved to Asheville, I started to... I needed a second income, um, and so I started sports writing. So I started writing about Liverpool Football Club and, and uh, fantasy sports, uh, fantasy soccer, and was doing that for a couple of years. But what I found during that time was because I was doing this as my job, like I would get up 
every day and write two or three articles because I got paid by click. So I had to like put out as many articles as I could just because you never know which ones are going to do well. Mm. And what I found with my writing was because I was doing this job where I was having to write and create every day, I kind of lost creative energy for my own work. Mm. And so it both in like I tend to be most creative in the morning, so like between – eight and 12 and then I get another burst between like 10 and two at night so I was spending all this time between eight and 12 every day writing sports articles and I just never had the the kind of creative energy to like get around to my my own things and so eventually that finished it just became unviable financially for a few reasons and so I then thought, well, I'm going to write a book. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down and write a book. And so I, I sat down in February of 2020 to write a book. And then three weeks later, COVID happened and my kids were at home permanently for almost 18 months. Mm. And so I didn't write that book. Uh, I wrote like the first few chapters and it was like a theology book. And like, I don't know, I just don't think the world needs many more theology books um, from guys like me. And so I kind of lost interest in it and just went back to poetry and in a fit of confidence one day like I, I just never really liked that but in a fit of confidence one day I was like I'm going to post one of these poems on Instagram I'm just going to put it up there and share it with people and it was actually the I wrote a series of Beatitudes for the Enneagram mm. and um, I put up one of those as that was I didn't label it as that, though. I just kind of put it up as a poem, and people liked it. Like, I was really surprised. And so I was like, oh, I could do this. Like, I could put up the things I write and started to do that. And then in two, when it got to 2021, I was like, I'm going to do this every week. I'm going to write and post a poem and put it up every week for 2021. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing a bit more than that because I ended up getting into it and uh, started to get encouragement. And slowly it built, and people started sharing them and um, kind of – took off I guess from there so that's like the main arc of my creative journey and so in in the last six months or so I've got to meet loads of amazing brilliant writers on Instagram including yourself and so I'm very grateful that I've found all these other brilliant writers yeah. I love that phrase a fit of confidence <laughs> yeah <laughs> just just yeah, oh, I don't know where it, it comes from yeah yeah it's like <laughs> Um, I guess I would, maybe it's the Holy Spirit, you know, like, and it's that kind of God ordained, uh, yeah, it just didn't come for myself. Like I just mm-hmm. didn't believe in it that much and didn't want to do it that much. But, you know, sometimes you're, you know, you're like, screw it. Let's, let's just do it and see what happens. Um, and then immediately regretting it. Like you post yeah. it and then just feel so <laughs> vulnerable and, embarrassed and ashamed and you hate yourself and you hate your writing and you just want to delete your entire account instantly (laughs) uh but i didn't (laughs) and so i was talking about this with a friend recently i think there's a there's a cycle in creativity where you have the creative urge to, to to write and create and then you develop it and then you it's a cycle so it comes around and that's like say a at 12 o'clock and then it comes around and you develop it and you get around to like six o'clock and at six o'clock is like another urge, which is the urge to share. So it's like, it comes around. And then after that, the difficult part with creation is after you've had that sharing is to get round back to 12 is to get to mm-hmm. the point where 
you're going to write again and, and get there. And I think when you share and it goes badly and you have lots of bad feelings about it, it takes longer to get around. And so at least what I found is like the more I've shared things and received more encouragement and just kind of a bit more self-confidence, um, that, that little turn around the corner just becomes a little quicker. Mm. And so you, you, I just get there a little easier now to, to the next time. Yeah. So you, you name some of the, the risks or are the results to communication, mm -hmm. to creativity, to this kind of expression. And so much about this chapter, God as communicator is about that notion. One of those risks that are inherent to human communication. And then this idea of God inhabiting and, and entering into embracing those, those risks. What are some of the risks that feel the weightiest to you? when you uh, think about putting your poetry into the world and expressing spirit and soul through through language and then what keeps you from staying quiet when those yeah. fears surface um in terms of things that worry like i that that cause me pause and hesitation and worry me sometimes is not so much when i'm sharing things that i think will just be a balm for people that I think are going to be a blessing. It's just going to, it's going to soothe people. You know, when I, when I think I'm writing those things, I don't worry much at all, but it's when I'm writing the things that are going to agitate and things that are going to prod and poke things that are going to frame things in such a way that you might have to abandon your old way of thinking mm. to, to come to where I'm at with it. And th those things come with a little more hesitation and a little more thought and, you know, weighing up of am I really communicating what I mean? But I I've got to be honest, I do actually like annoying people. And so <laughs> it's it's like it's why I can't ever get into the comment sections of anything because I'm a natural troll. Like I just want to, <laughs> I just want to wind up evangelical Theo bros, you know. And so... So I try and avoid that, and um, so I, 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 that isn't actually the thing that makes me most hesitant about sharing. The thing that most makes me most hesitant is like when I think about because I'm quite an empathetic person. Like I, I, I really feel other people's feelings, and so it's when I'm posting stuff that I think might trigger someone else's pain. That's when I really have pause for thought. Like I wrote a poem about friends of mine whose baby died and 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 I and I re I almost didn't share it just because I, I I know that it can be a point of pain for people like even when I share anything that's like romantic like I share stuff for poems I've written for my wife or, or that are romantic in in nature like I I do think about the people that are single and and um and how this might make them feel and even when I share poems about friendship like I'll get comments like uh, I don't have any friends like this and mm. being online in the way that I am, like you just hear lots of people's stories and that can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I am conscious of, of people's pain, but ultimately I have a, uh, a real strong creative urge. And so I don't, for me to get over it, it really is, it's the desire to, to connect Mm. outweighs everything else and so 
it's the, there's something in me that isn't happy with just creating, but wants to pursue connection too. It's not just about me having this lovely little poem that sits in my notes app, but I want it to be in the world. And so I don't hesitate too much. Like I don't, like for me, it's like a, comp- a compulsion. I need to shut up more rather than um, <laughs> than, than the other way around. Like, it, and I know that other artists and, and communicators find it the the opposite. Like they're always struggling to to get to the point where the, you know, like they will share. I'm probably more the other way. I kind of have to rein myself in a little bit, um, mm. you know, for good and or for ill. <laughs> That's just the way I am. Yeah. I know one of the risks for me that I name in the chapter is the experience of being misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, spent several years teaching undergraduate Bible and theology courses and just that feeling of standing in front of a room full of 50, 60 undergrads going, yeah, everything I'm saying is, is being interpreted through 60 individual channels, half of which aren't even paying attention. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's so many that are just, not going to get it and they're going to misunderstand and misinterpret. And then, you know, I get their essays back just to have that confirmed. And for me, this, this experience of for for someone to not like what I'm saying or, or, you know, putting out into the world is one thing. I actually prefer that to their misunderstanding it. Right. Uh, And, and so I'm curious for, for you, as you've, you've put out poetry, right? It's different than yeah. a college lecture, but it is, uh-huh. it's a form of communication. Have you ever had an experience where someone just totally misses it? Yeah, all the time. It, it, like it's, it actually happens more in poetry than it did when I was like preaching and stuff because, mm-hmm. but it would hurt me more when I was preaching because I, I was trying to make things very, very clear and straightforward. And then people would come up to you and, and be like, you, you said this, 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 and be like, I did not say that. Mm-hmm. Like that is not what I meant. And sometimes you're like, I'm glad you got that from, from yeah. what I said. And other times you're like, nope, you're, you're, you're actually hearing the exact opposite of what I was saying. And I don't know how that happened. Maybe that's my fault. But with poetry, like I, I leave quite a lot ambiguous a lot of the time. And the great thing, this is just the total freeing thing for me, is with everything I'm writing really now coming through the, the poetry and prose angle, I don't have to tie up things or explain things mm. and and make them into neat bows, which for me is just a far more appealing way of of speaking about God and faith. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I I get misunderstood all the time, but that's part of the territory with poetry, I think. And so it actually makes it easier to to deal with emotionally because I know I'm not trying to make myself very, very obvious a lot of the times. Usually when people misunderstand me, it's that. Or maybe they misunderstand an intention. That That's when it per- perhaps hurts more. Mm-hmm. It's like when I've done this to like always to just to do good in the world, you know, but people will, will see it sometimes as destructive mm-hmm. or um, hurtful, I guess. But the only time like I have one time where I – I tweeted about how British Christians have the same delusion. This was before the Queen died. Has the mm-hmm. same delusion about the Queen's Christian faith as American evangelicals do about Donald Trump's Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't saying that the Queen's faith is the same as Donald Trump's faith. Is is different. Like it's the Queen and Donald Trump are not very similar, apart from they have a propensity for gold furniture. <laughs> Uh, apart, apart from that, 
they're very different. And um, but what I was saying is that the delusion that kind of British Christians have is like that she's this incredible woman of faith and stuff like this is like no, not really. You know, like you know, she say nice Christian things every now and then, but she's quite clearly not a, a Jesus-like figure, you know, or, or living like Jesus in any kind of real significant way. Um, and this similar delusion that goes with Donald Trump. And so everyone just thought I was comparing the Queen to Donald Trump, and I wasn't. I was comparing the delusion of mm-hmm. of Christians that we we tend to overplay the Christianity of the political or religious leaders that we like, and. Um, and that was my point, but my point got very much lost. And um, yeah, so I had just a lot of very angry British people um, <laughs> in my mentions for a week, mm. which I quite enjoyed, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, sounds like it, actually. <laughs> I know, I actually yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the reasons that I love your poetry, and, and there are many reasons, um, oftentimes when I'm engaging poetry, it feels a little bit to me like my experience in an art museum where I'm never, I just, I kind of want someone to come and confirm whether I'm getting it or not. Right. Or like, am I doing this right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's parts that feel accessible and the parts that I'm like, wait, is that, is that a metaphor? Is this literal? Right. And, and certainly I don't, I don't mean to like to demystify or to denigrate your poetry in any way, but to say it feels deeply accessible to me. Like I can enter yeah. into it and immediately I'm, I'm out of just my head going, am I, am I doing this right? Like that option doesn't even exist. I get to just kind of enter it into it a yeah. little bit more of a full bodied way. It's like, it, it has this, this experience of, um, capturing me or connecting with me before I get to even go to my head and try to analyze yeah. it, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I want to talk for a second just about the nature of of poetry and its connection with truth. And while I, I don't often write write poetry, it's not my, um, uh, my default kind of mode of communication. What it seems to me is that it allows for a lot of liminality, for flexibility, for ambiguity, um, and it doesn't demand kind of bookends around truth, mm-hmm. right? And yet it's communicating all kinds of truth all of the time. So I'm curious for you, how does being a poet inform your approach to uh, to faith, to parenting, to being a human being? I, I think um, the job of the poet is to, is, is to pay attention mm-hmm. and to see what what's going on in, in the world and in, in life and around us and and then to put language to it. And so um, in terms of parenting and life and faith, I think that's, I'm always trying to, to do that. And, and that will come across in my work a lot is that I, I will write about my kids and, and specifically parenting and I'll write about my relationships and I'll write about my home and I'll write about my work and I'll write about my life and I'll write about the environment I live in and, and the culture I live in and, and I'm trying to just pay attention to, to all these things and, and, and it's that kind of, yeah, I would say it's three things. It's the attentiveness to the world around us. It's the language to, to put it in there. But but going one, one little step beyond that, it's actually bringing meaning. And so my experience of life and God and faith is that there's just a lot of chaos and unknown elements to to this life. You know, it. it I, I think back to to chapter one of Genesis where, you know, the spirit is hovering over the waters. It's like formless, and what God does is starts to give things form, give things 
uh, purpose, give things meaning, and then um, ultimately gives human beings the task of naming and giving language to 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 what has been made and created. And so that I, I as a poet, I feel very much in, in connection with, with God in that way. Like that's mm-hmm. what I'm doing is um, bringing meaning to what is is otherwise meaningless. You know, uh, to bring beauty or to see the beauty that is already in the the, the mundaneness of our lives and, and then the, the everyday of our lives and that we just in in our busyness in our preoccupation with uh the future or the past that we we kind of miss what what is happening right in our mm. midst and so my task i think is to see that to give it language and and to to ascertain the meaning, which is truth, you know, it's, it's discovering the truth, the beauty in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that kind of full circle description. You describe your role as a, a, your role as a poet and of being um, to pay attention, and that in your work of paying attention, of putting language to it, that it, it extends this invitation to others then to do the same, right? To yeah. pay attention to, like you said, the. Uh, the magic, the miracle, the mystery mm-hmm. of what is seemingly ordinary or or mundane. Yeah, and I wrote a poem called Priesthood about this exact same thing, and it was um, doing the laundry and the dishes and meal preparation are not tasks of the mundane, because being clothed and clean and fed declares the dignity of human life Mm. and nurtures us into new days, into new eras, and they are not mundane. No, they are the rituals of care. Mm -hmm. And I'm a real big believer in the priesthood of all believers, and um, that's something that really shapes my view of church and um, faith. And so I really wanted to communicate that these seemingly mundane tasks that we that we go through is just to look after ourselves and others every day. Uh, they add up to, to really um, to a priesthood. Like we are, we are tending to, to one another in the same way that a, a priest tends to a, a congregation or a priest tends to God and, and just wanted to highlight that. And so that, that's mm. kind of typical of a lot of my work, just really simply straightforwardly trying to highlight the, the meaning in, in, in everyday life. Mm-hmm. I love that poem so much. And and honestly, it conveys so much of why writing this book was so important for me, because if I am freed up to image God in a plethora of ways, and, yeah. and you know, obviously I, I use in particular this, this feminine lens because it resonates with my own embodiment experience. But what that does, among many other things, is it invites me to see the sacredness of everything that I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. So that as I'm showing up as a parent, um, as a mother in particular, or <clears throat> as I'm midwifing in a situation, right? Or I'm a hostess or whatever it may be. But in that space, this is a way that I reflect the image of the divine. Yeah. So again, you know, it's like you give these examples of offering tender care or folding laundry. And yeah. so in those moments, this is a way again that I I express I express the divine image, and if God is only conveyed in a particular set of of images and metaphors that are really narrow and and solely masculine, that's going to be a hell of a lot harder for me to get there. 
yeah. because I don't have connection to those things, right? Like I'll, I'll never show up in the world as, as king or as he, but I will yeah. show up in the world as gardener, right? Or as yes. mother. Yeah. And in those places, oh, here's where I am, I am reflecting God. That's a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. I, I know the difference that that feels in my body, the, the connection that that gives me to myself, to the divine, to humanity, to creation. It really is that significant for me. I, I think I was given a, a theology that, that didn't, you know, despise work like that or, or mundane things, but the way I was taught to like perceive them, and I think particularly how women are taught to perceive it, is like it's worship. So like you, as you're doing the laundry, that's worship. As you do the dishes, that's worship. Everything can be worship. Everything mm-hmm. can be done for the glory of God, which I, I don't necessarily disagree with. But I think what that does is that it, it actually makes it a spiritual abstract mm-hmm. of um, this is something that that is done for some kind of separate abstract glory of God, you know, as if, there's no real connection there, I think, between the two. And so you kind of just do these things because you're meant to do them and you should be doing them. And you're hoping that if you do them with the right attitude and maybe with the right thoughts as you're doing them, somehow God will be honored and glorified in that. And maybe that's how it works. But, you know, one of the things I'm always trying to draw out, and I think you do a really similar thing in the book, is um, that the tasks themselves are worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And that there, it's actually within that that these it isn't. I'm not just folding laundry for the glory of God. I'm doing it as a ritual of care. Mm-hmm. Of uh, this is what is propelling me, my family, and on a wide um, accumulative scale, the human race mm-hmm. forward. You know, so we can be here tomorrow. And then we can go into new generations and new eras. It's like that's the, it's the, it's the propulsion uh, behind us existing and, and mm. having dignity in our lives. And it isn't simply meant to be this separate, abstract, um, spiritualized work. I, I think we're actually meant to, or I think we actually do best when we really enter into it as valid and purposeful for its own purpose you know mm-hmm. for its own act yeah i don't remember what chapter i say this in i think it, it's the one after the one that we're kind of describing today but uh, i say you can dress up god language and concepts in fancy highbrow theology but the abstract is not where humans live mm. we live in the flesh and blood dirt and mud day in and day out reality of life If God language cannot find us where we change diapers and care for our aging parents and tend to seeds in a field, then it's not worth the shit we get on our hands when we do so. Good theology is reflective of real life, the life that it then informs and gives meaning to. Yeah, that's beautiful. Hmm. That's beautiful. Uh, and, And that's exactly it. So one of the ways that when I would teach, um, particularly courses like biblical ethics, where I wanted to start 
to help students even understand, to even invoke a, a term like biblical, we got to discuss what we even mean by that, right? So yep. really in that class, and honestly, anyway, I would teach, I would really spend the first few weeks kind of exploring that that notion, our assumptions about text. And I would, I would talk about poetry as a, a genre of communication. I would compare it with others and say, you know, talk about the assumptions you have about truth when you pick up a newspaper and that if you read something, you know, in whatever is, is going to be on the top of the fold there, it's not in the, you know, an, an opinion section or, you know, a letter to the editor or something, right? You have certain assumptions that if it's written here, it's gone through a certain board that has says, mm -hmm. to the best of our, our knowledge, this is factually you know, true. It's, it's accurate in that way. Okay. So that's a certain set of assumptions and understanding. But then if you pick up a book of poetry and you read something about, you know, that the tree bent over to brush its limbs against the ground, mm -hmm. you could equally say, well, this is true, <laughs> yeah. but it's not a factual statement. Right. And so yeah. even there helping students begin to assess, well, what do we even mean by, by truth and our different yes. conceptions of it that we're already doing, right. We're already, we already picked that up in life, but maybe have, have not necessarily brought it to the point of real reflection or, or articulation. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about this connected to, again, the assumptions we have about text in general and our fears that we bring to, to religious text. So in this chapter, I, I say, quote, we are terrified that the words of scripture might hold a plethora of meanings, that they could be a wide open field in which to run and explore rather than a codified instruction manual. So we carefully craft doctrinal statements about the authority of the Bible and its presumed infallibility and perfection. And we make these demands of sacred texts that ironically tell of a God who seems to hold none of the fears that we do about yeah. communication. Yeah. How have you seen that dynamic or those fears play out, even whether in yourself or within communities of faith? And what, are, what impulses do you think drive those fears? It really is the fear it's the fear that w that we might get to choose and decide mm. anything. And so we are encouraged, in fact told explicitly, that we have to conform our lives and our thoughts and our, our very selves to the Bible. And as you've already <laughs> kind of hinted on like the bible is not this like obvious uniform thing that is uh, an instruction manual for life like it is deep and rich and complicated and um, compiled over thousands of years and written in all sorts of different contexts by all sorts of different people and and so i i think the real fear there is that um there there isn't someone telling us what to do and that there isn't a God that is like going to demand that we uh, conform our lives to this text. And, and that is a genuine fear because what the, we're really fearing there is the chaos inside ourselves. And so we really fear at that point that like without this, I am going to be utterly off the rails, mm. you know, like without having to do everything the Bible tells me to do. I'm just going to, you know, uh, be the worst human being in the world. And that's actually quite telling on ourselves, you know, like 
bearing in mind that like all you know billions of people on this planet do not conform themselves to to scripture in any way and don't believe this at all and yet still live good moral lives like mm-hmm. it's it's telling that christians often feel like they would you know be down the brothel snorting coke off a, <laughs> a stripper's thong <laughs> if if they um if they weren't you know didn't have the bible if mm-hmm. if they didn't have to conform to 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 the bible it's actually quite telling and and so i i think people are very much afraid of their own desires and very much afraid of the chaos that lives inside of us very much afraid of of the the abyss the unknown the void that we just avoid in 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 every possible way and so for me i view jesus as someone who in the act of taking up his cross and dying was really not avoiding the the chaos and but stepping right into it and mm-hmm. and choosing in, in an act of free will to to enter into the abyss into the void into death into nothingness and willingly did that and so uh in terms of how i approach scripture it's like i'm I'm never wanting to shy away from my doubts. I'm never wanting to shy away from the things I don't know or don't understand, the the things that I find frustrating, the things that I find honestly in regards to like the genocides in scripture evil, the things that I find just totally baffling. And I try not to hide from any of that. And I try to to face it and meet it with all of myself and thought and emotions and beings and and, and being and and try and um, live in it and try and go into it and try and enter into it and and not necessarily with the outcome of trying to conquer it or understand, mm. but purely to to exist in it and then to let it do what it will do in me. And I find that. Um, far more rewarding and enriching and ultimately fruitful for good than trying to conform my life to what I think the Bible is telling me to. Mm. Does that make sense? I, mm-hmm. I went quite dark there, but... <laughs> no, I, yes, it's resonating with me in every way and it's, it's beautiful and profound and that, that image of I'm not entering this to seeking to conquer something which goes yeah. against i mean the, the entire nation who holds my citizenship right i mean our whole story is about yeah. conquering and dominating and and that has informed so much of folks experience of faith within this country and, and certainly beyond you know we're not alone within these colonizing or imperialistic impulses but that that shows up in faith then as well right and the, yeah. and the structures and, and institutions therein it's this idea of I'm not, I'm not coming in to try to conquer anything but as you said to exist in it to dwell in it yeah. to see what there is to see and to nurture what we find there and mm-hmm. to to care for ourselves and and others in 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 where we discover ourselves and others in in those places of real dark night of the soul or mm-hmm. And desperate places and and paul paul says in scripture we are more than conquerors like we are not we didn't just come the kingdom of god is not just about entering into the kingdom of the earth and taking over we have to be the ones who nurture the land and look after Mm -hmm. the land and lead it into fruitfulness and lead it into abundance and lead it into a healthy 
uh, ecosystem. And th that's who we are. We're, we're, we're more than contra uh, conquerors. We're, we're nurturers and we're farmers and we're, we're tenders and we're care workers and we're nurses and we're parents and we're, we're teachers. That, that's what we are. We mm -hmm. are an army of carers. Mm -hmm. And so there's a phrase that I use a lot, uh, which is a rebellion of care. And I stamp it on all the poems I send out to folks. I send, I send a, a little note and I stamp on uh, a rebellion of care. And I really think that just, that sums up my, my work is what I really am trying to see is like a, a revolution, a, a rebellion of, of care for one another. Because ultimately I, I, I am pretty kind of pessimistic about our governments mm -hmm. and both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and in Britain, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, I'm kind of pessimistic about their ability to do anything that's actually going to help us in the long term. Mm -hmm. And so, not to get too political, but I really believe in um, that it's down to us to look after one another and mm -hmm. that if we can enter into a, a true rebellion of care for one another and for the weakest and the, and the, and the people who have the least in our society then that's how we're going to transform things and that requires spiritual communities and that requires mutual aid and that requires all sorts of sacrifices but that can be achieved without political power yeah what is something that you know about god or truth or yourself or the world because that you write poetry i think that it it all matters mm -hmm. and so I, in the act of writing and in the act of, as, uh, you know, what I feel like the calling of the poet is, is, is to observe and to put language and meaning uh, to things, is that you, you begin to realize that, that everything matters yeah. and that everything is connected and that, you know, everything has a butterfly effect and, and the kind of little acts of of appreciation, of attentiveness, of gratefulness for what we have, they they fan out and they ripple out into in, into real change and, and transformation in this world. And so that's what I understand stand about God is, is through that. And, and they really, I think about the, the images, the, Jesus' first few parables, about the kingdom of God is, is a mustard seed and the kingdom of God is like yeast and the kingdom of God is like a pearl and the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. And, and just these very, very simple uh, images of just how important the small and hidden is. Mm. And so I get that from, from paying attention to the world, I think, and trying to put language to it. Yeah, the significance of the small and hidden it all matters. Yeah. Everything is sacred. Yeah, and, and not even that, oh yeah, don't forget the little things, but the little things are the thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that, it, that is it. That's what it is. It, the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is not a castle. The kingdom of God is not a throne. The kingdom of God is so different. It is the mustard seed. It is the yeast. It is the, the tiny act of change. And so, yeah. I'm so thankful that in the midst of all of the risks and vulnerabilities of creating and 
seeking to put your soul into speech that you continue to do so and continue to write and to create your work is, mm -hmm. as you named it at times, a balm for me. Um, sometimes I'm laughing, sometimes I'm in tears and it's all so, so beautiful. Would you, you be willing to share one or two poems with us? Yeah. I'm going to read, uh, I've got two here that I'd like to share. Uh, mm -hmm. This one is called uh, Holy Mother and kind of ties in a lot with your amazing book. Um, and so I'm going to read this. It's called Holy mm -hmm. Mother. I see you with your world in your arms, one life begets another. I see you, blood given, body stretched, and on occasion broken, but not like porcelain in pieces, like bread you're tearing open. I see you, with your heart outside your chest, still beating, swaddled at your breast. I see you, and this is why I must worship God as mother. That's the poem I have that up the, here behind that's me. That's the, the one wall. you have. <laughs> yeah, right. and it resonates so much with the God is Mother chapter that that comes yes. eight or nine, whenever it is. Yeah, but, yeah, it's a beautiful chapter. Uh, I, re I just to talk more about your book because that's why we're here. Um, <laughs> I really love the God is Seamstress um, mm -hmm. chapter, and I love the. I can't remember which chapter it is in where you list all of the names. Mm -hmm. um, which chapter is that? Um, uh, it's fifteen. Just God is. Yes. Mm -hmm. I found that such a helpful exercise. Like I have started to do it myself mm. and, and to like create my own names for God and my own ways of seeing God. And like I do that anyway, but just to actually put language to it is, mm -hmm. is the work of the poet and it's the work of the human race to, na to name things. And so, um, and you're a poet too. Like, so you, you have some beautiful descriptions of God in that chapter. It's, mm. it's, oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you. So I've got another poem that I Please. want to read. Uh, this one is kind of Christmas um, themed. Where it's from the, from the, the that story from the Christmas story, um, and it's called "Joy is an Act of Rebellion." Joy is an act of rebellion against established order, which is why the angels brought their glad tidings to the night shift serfs rather than the boardroom suits, because the joy of heaven heralded to us, cannot be commoditized, privatized, or monetized. And while the system takes all it can from our tired bodies and stacks its weight upon our aching backs, it will never, not ever, ransack our hallelujahs. Mm. I'm so thankful that there are poets in this world. As I hear you name truth and put language to it, I'm just thinking, goodness, what... What would the world be like without poets, without people like yourself and others being willing to pay attention mm -hmm. to name what they see? And I'm thankful that God is poet, that God is communicator. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we've, we've talked about willing to enter into and embrace all of the messiness and imprecision and complexities of human communication, because it all matters yeah. as you've, as you've named friend thank you so much for this beautiful conversation i'm thank grateful you. for you and your work what a delight what a delight if you've enjoyed conversations you've heard on in the waves you can purchase a copy of my book god is wherever you get your books 
You can also be part of our final episode where I will engage questions that listeners have about the book and the conversations that we've shared here. So submit your questions via email to inthewavespodcast at gmail.com and let's keep the conversation going. To stay up to date on my writing and events, be sure to visit my website, mallorywyckoff.com and subscribe to my newsletter. You can also follow me on social media at Mallory Wyckoff. This podcast was produced by the fabulous Mariah Keener. Thanks for listening.